Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of BYL Ask. I'm your host, Ugochuku Chukujiaka. Today we have a very special guest with us, one who I've admired for a long time. I'll just let him introduce himself. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Michael Horn here, uh, the uh, head of strategy of the Entangled Group and uh, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute and uh, the author of the uh, new book coming out uh, in September, Choosing College. Wonderful. Excited about every part of that. Um, I will try to control my fan-like behavior uh, for the interview <laughs> and, and stick to the script. So Michael, um, one of the things I find very exciting, and we talked about this some time ago, um, is how similar a lot of the transition that nations have taken. So whether you call them global north or developed nations or global south or whatever, um, is how similar their development process looks. Um, so let's just speak about the higher education in the U.S., right, and that history and how it evolved and maybe some similarities with what, what we see in developing nations right now. Totally, totally. So, and I think you're absolutely spot on that uh, a lot of people, when they think about development, they tend to uh, want to leapfrog ahead and, and forget some of the beginning stages that, that happen before you have infrastructure and good government, uh, you know, structures and policies and things of that nature. That, but that innovation is actually a critical first component, uh, which is the argument my friend and colleague uh, Afosa uh, Ajoma makes in his new book, Prosperity Paradox. Uh, but in the higher ed world in the United States, if you went back, uh, to the 1700s, you would see just a few private colleges and universities popping up around the country serving the elite. And, and the notion was uh, college is basically there to prepare those who will be the leaders of the country, mm -hmm. but it's not for the masses. And then uh, in the mid-1800s uh, and, and late 1800s, you started to have a wave of new universities come out in the United States uh, funded by the land-grant uh, acts of that time that created basically state universities uh, and, and universities that were often focused on the agricultural and industrial economies of that mm -hmm. time. We got the emergence of research universities for the first time. And what's really interesting is that I think everyone says, oh, universities always evolve. They always figure out how to make change. Uh, but actually only a few universities Yale, Harvard, you know, institutions like that made the leap from a what was then a small college uh, into a research-based university. Most of the research-based universities we think of uh, today, like Johns Hopkins, MIT, and so forth, were actually founded uh, in that 1800s period. And so you started to extend access, universities started to get into research, and then you fast forward uh, about 80 more years, uh, and you really have the acceleration uh, in the mid-1900s of community colleges to further democratize access uh, to higher education. They were called junior colleges back then. Uh, and then uh, in the last 20 years or so, you've had another wave of innovation, uh, this one fueled by online learning that is allowing people at all stages of life, even if they're working and so forth, uh, to be able to start to access higher education. So you've seen a real democratization uh, of, of higher education and significantly broader access over time. What's interesting, I think, as you think about uh, developing countries right now, is that uh, in many places, we're just starting to get those uh, maybe, maybe just past the elite, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, higher education system in place, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You're starting to see African Leadership uh, University, uh, places like that that are sort of taking that next step out. And then you're also seeing uh, in places like Rwanda, uh, the emergence of Kepler uh, and institutions like that 
that are further democratizing access, but are not quite at the, uh, you know, so low cost that anyone anywhere can attend uh, yet. And so I, I, I think we'll see that in these waves, although I expect that in Africa and places, uh, you know, other developing countries, uh, that those waves may be significantly more compressed uh, mm-hmm. than the timeline I just laid out in the United States. And I, I think the opportunity, frankly, is that where Africa and other developing nations um, throughout the world uh, can leapfrog the United States is that they don't have to rely on the same technologies that the United States used uh, as they established their higher education institutions. That is, you can move to mobile learning, online learning, blended learning uh, modalities much quicker to, in my opinion, uh, stand up different institutions of of different purposes uh, and scale them significantly faster and more affordably, which I I think is a really exciting opportunity. The the lesson I think that I draw from AFOSA's work in Prosperity Paradox uh, and from the history of higher education in America is that these waves of higher ed innovation should be in lockstep with the needs of the economy, Uh, that that these things shouldn't be independent or decoupled or, or that we assume just because we have higher education for all, that all of a sudden the economy will develop, it's more likely that we're going to see innovation in the economy. And then that pull in uh, individuals uh, into the economy and, and, and create the need for more skills, which will create the need for more uh, education and training programs, which I think is, you know, the uh, Adela, Indela story right now, yeah. uh, or Moringa School, right, and places like that that are responding to that demand right now. Excellent. You're spot on uh, two things. One is the transition from um, education being targeted at the elites to the transition of it being targeted at what um, what the reality is. So for the U.S. it was agriculture and industrialization. Uh, for Africa is we need good leadership, right? That's what ALU, that's what Ashesi, that's what they are doing. For Africa, you need um, a workforce that can sort of power through the the 21st century. That's what Andela is doing. And I, I think it's, it, the, the parallels are very clear. The parallels are extremely clear. So I, I, I want to take a peek into your, your book that's coming up um, and just speak to, in the US, and maybe we can, we can draw some correlation with what we see in, in Africa, in Ghana, and Nigeria, and Kenya. Um, why do students choose education. Yeah, so in, in, in the new book, In Choosing College, uh, which is available for pre-order now, so you can, you can uh, put in your advanced uh, copy. It, it comes out in September, as I said. Uh, what we did was we created many documentaries of uh, uh, well over 200 stories of students choosing to attend higher education. And so that's anything from college to boot camps to online programs, et cetera. Uh, and our research was focused in the United States, but but I think the lessons are, are broadly applicable. And what we did was we took the jobs to be done theory, the, the notion that people don't buy products or services, they're instead uh, seeking to make progress in, in their life in a specific circumstance, mm-hmm. and then they pull in products or services to help them make that progress. We We applied that idea to basically say, okay, what are the five jobs for which people hire college, if you will? Why, why are they attending? Uh, and and as I said, we came out with five out of the uh, out of the research, um, which which wasn't what we expected. By the way, we we had sort of no notion going in of what we might find, and uh, my predictions of what the jobs would have been were totally wrong. So, so what we <laughs> learned was uh, the first job 
is what we call help me get into my best school. So these are people who they've sort of been sold the American dream or the dream of going to college for its own sake, and they just want to get into the best school as, as they define the best for them um, under, under their, uh, uh, you know, h- however they frame that decision. But it's all about the act of getting in. It's very little about what they'll do after they get in. And yeah. so a lot of these surveys that so, show students are just going to get a job or something like that, that's something that people will answer in a survey, but it's not the real motivation for how or why they choose at, at, the, at the moment that they do. The second job we saw was help me do what's expected of me. So these are students who are going uh, because someone else uh, thought that they should. Their parents, their guidance counselors, their teachers, society, whomever said, you know, college is a really good next step. You ought to do that. Even though the students either weren't sure why they were going, they weren't particularly excited, or thirdly, uh, they hadn't gotten into the school they actually wanted to go into, and so they sort of felt like they just had to go somewhere uh, to fulfill someone else's expectations. Mm-hmm. But they're not personally very excited about it. Uh, the third job we found was uh, help me get away. So these are students who are running from something, a- abusive stepfather, bad town, bad work situation, whatever it might be. And uh, college is something socially acceptable that they can say that they're going to. Uh, to get away, but they're very unclear about uh, once they've gotten away, which is success for them, they're very unclear why they are enrolled, and so the success rates are not particularly great uh, for students who are committing to long uh, programs uh, in, in this job. And then the, the fourth one we found was uh, super interesting. It was help me step it up. So these students are super motivated. They're in a place where they like large parts of their life, but something just isn't uh, what it needs to be. And they say, this isn't who I am. I'm ready to step it up. I've, I've got a kid on the way. I've got a house that I have to pay off the mortgage, whatever it might be. And they say, I need new skills to step it up in my life. Uh, and then the last one we had was uh, that, that we found was help me extend myself. So these are uh, students who are looking uh, to, to learn more or be more, uh, and they have the time and budget to do it. And so they, it's sort of the, uh, I've always wanted to know more about X. So now I can, uh, I'm in a position where there, it's relatively low risk, and I can com- uh, make the commitment to learn more about something. I always joked uh, with my co-author, Bob uh, Mesta, who's the founder of the Jobs to be Done Theory, that this was a job I never had in my life uh, <laughs> because I've never been able to go back to school in this, in this sort of thing, situation. And he said, sure, you have had the job, but for you, uh, you're not in a position to go back to college, so you hire a book or a podcast uh, like this one uh, to make progress in your life, which, which I thought was a really helpful way to understand this one. Interesting. I, I'm extremely curious as to what the what we would see intersect if we were to do the same sort of research with um, students in, say, Ghana and Nigeria. Um, I suspect I'll be also very wrong, um, but it would be so interesting <laughs> to find out what the data would would say. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? Because we thought, or I don't know if Bob thought, <laughs> he's he's done this enough that he has, he's humble about what you'll find. Uh, but I thought that we'd find things like help me get a better job, help me switch careers, help me uh, transition to adulthood, things like that. Hmm. And that's just not the language that actual individuals use. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Like we're not just functional human beings who mm-hmm. are just going uh, to something for one purpose. We have a lot of forces pushing and pulling us towards something. And and these decisions are complicated and complex. And so the job to be done really rolls up a lot of these different forces uh, that are pushing and pulling us towards something new. 
Interesting. I, the one I find the most interesting, they are all very interesting, but the one I would like to pry into is help me get away. Like, I, I would like to mm. see what happens after you've gotten away and how you manage or balance um, your what was success for you and what is now reality. Uh, it would be so interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I, it's, you know, it's fascinating because I think one of our big suggestions out of it is how do you help people see that there are other options besides a four-year school, say, when they have that job. Because, uh, you know, what they really need to do is get out of their current circumstance. And, is, and the moment they've done that, they've succeeded. And it's a then what question, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, in some ways, you know, could you put them into a series of uh, boot camp experiences, 90-day mm-hmm. sprints or 30-day sprints through a variety of different careers so they could say, oh, I really like that. Like, mm-hmm. I've gotten away from my current circumstance and I want to do that. How do I go do that? And then you can start to uh, illuminate what that pathway would look like. And if they're still interested, then they can uh, dive into a new career pathway or something like that. Uh, but all too often, uh, a lot of these students in that job were, were, were just running from something and they would commit to the first thing that sort of grabbed them that was socially acceptable. And it, it just doesn't end well when, when you uh, take that pathway. This brings us quite well into the next question, uh, which is looking at the future of work, right, and the current design of higher education. What role should higher education play, right? How should it be structured? Yeah, so I mean, I, it's definitely moved my thinking on this uh, a little bit. I think as higher education has to understand, you know, why people are coming to them and design experiences appropriately. But on the other side, they have to realize that their other customer is often the workforce, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the employers that will hire you so that you can pay back the experience and make the investment uh, worthwhile. In, in, in this country, we have a system where uh, people pay, uh, you, you know, take out debt and loans so that they can go to higher education. And the only way that they can pay those uh, loans back is if they get a good job. And so the employer plays a critical part in it. What I think is evident is that a lot of the uh, schooling programs, they're created around the needs of the school. <laughs> they haven't thought about what the needs of the workforce are. Yeah. And this isn't to say liberal arts education is a bad idea. I think it's a very good idea, but it has to be liberal arts with a purpose uh, toward toward something larger in your life uh, and, and adding on technical skills that will be critical in the workforce. So uh, from, from my perspective, uh, higher education has to do a much better job of thinking through how do we prepare students to enter the workforce? And then how do we create more affordable, flexible, and convenient models that students can continue to come back to us as they need to step it up in their careers. Uh, Because the reality on the jobs that I just painted is that these jobs occur throughout your life. You're going to constantly be in positions where you need to step it up, where you need to get away from something else, Mm -hmm. where you want the best thing for you, where you want to just simply extend yourself because you're curious, can can I do X, right? And so you want a higher education system that can match the rhythms and needs uh, of those different jobs as they occur in your life, uh, aimed at, at life success, which, you know, isn't always, but is often uh, around the demands of the uh, workforce. I see a two-point or three-point mapping, right? One, higher education has to map to the needs of the students, and it also has to map to the needs of the workers while still um, taking care of itself, right? And, and mm-hmm. that's supposed to be the structure. 
Yeah, something we talk a lot about is there's sort of supply-side view of jobs to be done, and then there's a demand-side view. So the supply-side is, well, we offer bachelor's degrees, so I guess we'll offer a bachelor's degree. That's what they need. Uh, but that doesn't take into account or understand the demand side. And the mm-hmm. demand side is that the employers and, and students frame these uh, challenges uh, through their prism. And if you really want to meet demand and be uh, a place that people are dying to go to and, quite frankly, are willing to pay premium prices to go to, then you really have to start with the demand side equation. Forget about what you do today. Uh, and then integrate tightly uh, what you offer around that demand side view of the world. Interesting. We could spend uh, the next three hours talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. There's a lot. It's a rich topic, and I've I've learned a ton through it. Wonderful. Okay. So I I want to come into a, a very interesting um, article you and Clint Christensen put out um, about disruption mm-hmm. of higher education in the U.S. Um, can, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I, I assume you're referring to the piece we just wrote on in uh, Inside Higher Ed, where we were talking about the demise of small private colleges in the United States. Is yes, that that the article I assume. Yeah, so uh, it's you know it's very interesting. We have in the United States a ton of colleges and universities, several thousand, uh, which most people I think don't realize. And 40% of our colleges educate fewer than 1,000 students. So. When people uh, watch TV and hear Ohio State with with tens of thousands of students, or uh, they think about Yale and Harvard, you know, with with uh, Harvard, I think has twenty thousand students, uh, including its graduate population, you know, they think that's the face of higher ed. But the reality is, there's tons of small colleges and universities no one's ever heard of outside of those towns uh, that exist in this country, mm-hmm. and. What's been happening is that costs have just been going up year over year over year on those institutions. And since the recession in particular, but you could argue for a while, the ability of individuals to pay those prices uh, just hasn't just hasn't kept up. And so institutions have started to discount uh, what they offer more and more and more, give people scholarships in essence to attend, which means that they're not bringing in enough revenue <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to match their costs. And more lately, we're starting to see demographic pressures, meaning that there are fewer and fewer students in certain regions of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Big contrast, I think, from, you know, where you are in Ghana right now, uh, where where we're just not out of the recession. We just had fewer children in this country. And so uh, there's going to be a a dip in the number of high school graduates that will go to college starting in 2026. Uh, and uh, it's already hitting in places like the Northeast and Massachusetts, where I live right now. And so colleges, these small colleges that have, you know, enormous fixed costs and, and, and lots of physical plant, just losing 10, 15 students from an entering class really hurts their business model. And that's happening year over year over year right now. And you combine these forces. And so our prediction is that at least 25% of colleges are going to merge or, or close uh, in the next 15 years or so. Uh, and then the third piece of this that I, I actually think is playing less of a role, and it was the point that we made, is that Clay and I are sort of known as the disruptive innovation people. Uh, but uh, if you look at it, and, and we think online learning is a disruptive innovation in, in education, no doubt about it, but it's not playing a huge role at the moment in this weakness hitting these small colleges. I think it's playing a role at the margins, uh, in, in the form of boot camps and places like Southern New Hampshire University that educate 130,000 students or so now, 
they're playing a role at the margins um, for these institutions, but they aren't the primary driver at the moment of why so many small colleges, we believe, are going to uh, go out of business or fail uh, in the years ahead. A college that's listening to this right now and thinking about, okay, one, what's the driver of the of the overhead, right? The the increasing yeah. overhead, um, and how can we sort of protect against this disruption and and make sure we innovate? And how do we go about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought out the other piece of the article that we referenced, which is a major driver of the cost increases is not sort of the uh, crazy amenities that U.S. universities now uh, have in place, like opulent dining halls and lazy rivers and the like. The main driver of the cost is administrative overhead, uh, which is to coordinate the complexity of these operations that try to be all things to all people. So we have two pieces of advice, ultimately. One is figure out where your strengths are and uh, leverage them to innovate. So, you know, uh, Southern New Hampshire University didn't stand pat. They created a robust online offering that now means they're the largest university, I think, in the world. Uh, And uh, Simmons College in Boston, small, struggling liberal arts college uh, for women, uh, realized that they had great nursing and social work programs that had national appeal, put them online, and now they generate something like $60 million uh, from those programs online. Uh, in just like five or six years, so oh, there's right. tremendous uh, opportunity if you if if you you know see your assets and figure out novel ways to innovate around them. The second thing we say is really be clear, you know, to that conversation we were having earlier around choosing college. What's the job to be done for which students are coming to you? What's the true demand for what you offer? And really focus around that. Stop trying to be all things to all people, and just be the best you can be. Uh, where where you can be excellent for 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 students that are demanding what you do, and so uh, you know a place like Olin College of Engineering, it's really clear that a, a, a liberal arts education in engineering is what they offer. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a great place to learn to design and, and think and and do real meaty projects. They're not going to offer uh, an English degree or an uh, you know far flung degrees that don't fit uh, with what they do, journalism or something like that. Uh, they're crystal clear, and so they can lower their administrative overhead as they really focus in and uh, and hone in on the job to be done for which uh, students are hiring them. And so that focus, eliminating complexity, can really aid you uh, as you uh, as, as you try to figure out how to ward off this collapse that uh, is threatening many institutions right now. How how would he affect um, those in developing nations with increasing um, growing population and average age of eighteen? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so my instinct is that um, that helped me get into my best school job that we have in the United States is probably significantly less of a presence um, in Africa because there hasn't been a cultural norm around this college dream, right? That the that the uh, publications here obsess about uh, and that media obsesses about here. Um, and so my instinct is that there's going to be a lot of students that are in this help me step it up, right? Like, mm. uh, I, want, I want to step it up, lift my, my family out of poverty, uh, create something that's valuable, uh, live a good life. This isn't who I am. Otherwise, there, there may be a help me get away driver as well. But, but my instinct is that that's where a lot of the energy would, would probably be. And so I think the opportunity is to create uh, short-form blended learning programs that allow you to serve uh, students 
relatively low cost and low opportunity cost, um, but with uh, uh, programs that very are, are very tuned to the workforce needs so that they can get you in, train you up, and then place you directly into well-paying jobs. And you may then choose to go back to higher education and, and maybe a more formal university program later for further education. But in the immediate term, it's going to, my, my instinct is that there's a huge opportunity for innovation uh, to, to, to serve this burgeoning population that might not have the liquidity to, to you know, pay for a traditional uh, Western-style college experience. Uh, and so I, I think there's tremendous opportunity to innovate in that way. And I, I think the blended learning piece of it is important because my instinct is that mobile learning or online learning, and I actually am really bullish on mo mobile learning in particular, particularly in Africa, but I think it'll actually disrupt online learning worldwide over the next uh, several years, um, uh, creates very flexible, high quality experiences uh, that can really help you build knowledge and then you can apply it in physical settings uh, with others of your classmates uh, in, in, in what's effectively blended learning. And so my, my instinct is that you can really create clusters of like-minded individuals who are interested in the same sort of industries and jobs uh, and, and have them work in places near their employers uh, so that you can really create some neat synergies um, uh, that, that are affordable and, and convenient to, to these blended learning type programs. This is sort of similar to the Lambda and the Andela model? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, very, very, very similar. You know, I mean, I, I look at what Moringa's school is doing, frankly, um, where they're even lower cost than Andela, right? And they're sort of, if you think of Andela as educating maybe the, uh, not quite the elite of the uh, coders and so forth, but, but that sort of strata, right, of, of people. Mm -hmm. Moringa School is like that next layer out um, and actually uses a lot of Mandela graduates as its teachers, I believe. Uh, and they have created a really interesting blended learning program uh, that is able to serve and scale uh, to large numbers of students that, that I think is really interesting. Uh, one of the projects we worked on, so I'm, I'm the head of strategy at Entangled, as I said, um, we offer consulting services uh, to hired institutions. We worked with Aquila, uh, you know, based in Rwanda, um, on their new concept uh, called Davis, um, which will be a blended learning competency-based model uh, focused on a, uh, a, a, a certificate or degree at roughly $800 um, price point using this blended learning model to significantly drive down costs, um, but give people a very high-touch model that, that uh, results in a, in, in, in a job at the end of it. Uh, and so we're very bullish on the opportunity as we worked with them to create this, this learning model. Just a lot of opportunities, we think, right now to really rethink what education looks like to give people a, an affordable experience that places them into a job at the end of it. I, I think that's exciting. Um, two things come to mind. One is the sort of the fire model um, that was run in Italy, um, I think in the 19th century, uh, where they basically created um, company schools um, because of the low, low human resource in the country at the time. And you look at the partnership that was recently signed by 2U and WeWork, um, which 
basically promotes or, or builds on the concept of a blended learning and looking at all of these things coming together right so you're looking at companies like multinationals that want to come into into africa and take advantage of this demography how how, how can these two things be combined right um so mm -hmm. companies are not going out to set up schools even though they are blended learning models and organizations and private entities are pushing this model yeah, I, look, I think you're on to something, which is companies can create co-working spaces, essentially, where you have both learners as well as employees in the same proximity to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So that uh, as I'm doing projects, I, maybe I'm learning online and then I'm doing a project with my fellow students, and that project can be one that the company uh, is really interested in. And so I can start to be working on a project directly around that company, show them my skills. Uh, and get uh, connections and build social capital at the same time with the employees of that company, which is going to give them more confidence to hire me on the other end. And uh, the company creates this learning space, if you will, that people want to be around and, and, and a real community. And they also create a name for themselves so that they differentiate themselves maybe uh, within within whichever country in Africa you know you, you, you want to talk about. Um, uh, and it looks like they're making an investment in the in, in the country, which they are, but it's for selfish reasons, right? <laughs> because that's going to allow them to have an unfair leg up uh, to to recruit in, uh, their future uh, employees and, and have people that meet the uh, talent needs that, that that they require. And so, I think it's a great idea for companies to sort of be leveraging this online learning modality to, to create these spaces where learners can come and then they can get the pick of the best ones uh, for, for, their, uh, for their talent needs. Interesting. I see a lot of possibilities there. Again, another conversation we can go down the rabbit hole and spend <laughs> three hours on. Um, yes. Uh, so basically, I want, I want to go, I'm tempted to go a bit deeper into that. For I see like a model where you can even leverage and bring um, and bring the public sector into this, right? You have companies that can more or less power the co-working space um, and they don't even have to think so much about um, pedagogy and the learning um, environment design and all of that partner with either an um, institution or someone like Moringa who, who powers the uh, academic part of things, right, and get some sort of concession from the government, right, that, that mm -hmm. makes it more accessible. And in that way, there's some elements of leapfrogging um, because with the U.S., as you, as you spoke about earlier, it started with the elites, um, went to more targeted at what the needs are in society, and then became about access and about uh, equitable distribution of it, right? So th there can be a leapfrog element where you bring private companies and you bring the government um, in, in, into the portal. I think that's right. And look, right now the United States is trying to retrofit its system so that employers are much more in the conversation, right, with, with its uh, higher education system. And it's hard because it's an install base that's built around a very different set of values. Uh, and so it's very hard to have that conversation in a, in, in, in a productive way uh, without it getting antagonistic. And it's not to say that the employer is always right uh, by any means. You know, higher ed has a lot of value and, and perspective on this. And people, like we just said, they're, they're not just going to school to get a job. But job is an important 
piece of the outcome in, yeah. in many of these cases. And so uh, Africa, I think, has a tremendous opportunity uh, to synchronize these points of view as it creates this system and resolve maybe some of these tensions that have emerged in the United States over the last several decades. Interesting. Thank you so much, Michael Horn. Um, our last question, we typically like to ask a slightly personal question. Um, mm. What's your favorite vacation destination? Yeah, well, so, so I, I, I understand that there are fights over food choices between Ghana and Nigeria <laughs> and so forth. Uh, so I'm not going to weigh in Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah, I'm not going to weigh in on that. Afosa has done his best to train me. But, uh, the, uh, and, and, of course, he's on the Nigerian side of that. Um, so uh, my wife and I love to escape to Hawaii whenever we can. We, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magical place uh, with, with lots of outdoor activity. Uh, each of the islands has a different character, uh, and, and we love uh, to, to, to get outdoors and be there. We go a lot less often these days than, than we used to uh, when we lived uh, in California. Uh, now that we're in, on the other side of the country, it's a little harder, uh, but it is a truly magical place. So I, I would have to say uh, Hawaii uh, because of the... Uh, the mix of the outdoors, the the the, the food, uh, and 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 just a very different climate um, f from uh, the rest of the country. Wonderful, wonderful. And on that note, we will end it. Thank you so much. We hope to welcome you soon to Ghana or Nigeria um, very soon. Actually, uh, we'll I, I I I I hope so as well. I, I'm uh, I, I'm 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 counting on it. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And um, as you all know, this uh, podcast is sponsored by Blend Your Learning. Um, it's a blended learning training company um, that provides training in project management, um, effective communication and leadership and a lot more. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, looking forward to other future conversations. Uh, looking forward to doing this a lot more. Terrific. Thank you so much. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of BYL Ask. I'm your host, Ugochuku Chukujiaka. Today we have a very special guest with us, one who I've admired for a long time. I'll just let him introduce himself. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Michael Horn here, uh, the uh, head of strategy of the Entangled Group and uh, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute and uh, the author of the uh, new book coming out uh, in September, Choosing College. Wonderful. Excited about every part of that um i'll try to control my fan like behavior uh, for the interview <laughs> and and stick to the script so michael um one of the things i find very exciting and we talked about this some time ago um is how similar a lot of the transition that nations have taken so whether you call them global north or developed nations or global south or whatever um, is how similar their development process looks um, so let's just speak about the higher education in the U.S., right, and that history and how it evolved and maybe some similarities with what, what we see in developing nations right now. Totally, totally. So, and I think you're absolutely spot on that uh, a lot of people, when they think about development, they tend to uh, want to leapfrog ahead and, and forget some of the beginning stages that, that happen before you have infrastructure and good government, uh, you know, structures and policies and things of that nature. That, but that innovation is actually a critical first component, uh, which is the argument my friend and colleague uh, Afosa uh, Ajoma makes in his new book, Prosperity Paradox. Uh, but in the higher ed world in the United States, if you went back uh, to the 
1700s, you would see just a few private colleges and universities popping up around the country serving the elite. And and the notion was uh, college is basically there to prepare those who will be the leaders of the country, mm-hmm. but it's not for the masses. And then uh, in the mid-1800s uh, and, and late 1800s, you started to have a wave of new universities come out in the United States uh, funded by the land-grant uh, acts of that time that created basically state universities uh, and, and universities that were often focused on the agricultural and industrial economies of that mm-hmm. time. We got the emergence of research universities for the first time. And what's really interesting is that I think everyone says, oh, universities always evolve. They always figure out how to make change. Uh, but actually, only a few universities Yale, Harvard, you know, institutions like that made the leap from a tradi- what was then a small college uh, into a research-based university. Most of the research-based universities we think of uh, today, like Johns Hopkins, MIT, and so forth, were actually founded uh, in that 1800s period. And so you started to extend access, universities started to get into research, and then you fast forward uh, about 80 more years, uh, and you really have the acceleration uh, in the mid-1900s of community colleges to further democratize access uh, to higher education. They were called junior colleges back then. Uh, And then uh, in the last 20 years or so, you've had another wave of innovation, uh, this one fueled by online learning that is allowing people at all stages of life, even if they're working and so forth, uh, to be able to start to access higher education. So you've seen a real democratization uh, of, of higher education and significantly broader access over time. What's interesting, I think, as you think about uh, developing countries right now, is that uh, in many places, we're just starting to get those uh, maybe maybe just past the elite, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, higher education system in place, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You're starting to see African Leadership U- uh, University, uh, places like that that are sort of taking that next step out. And then you're also seeing uh, in places like Rwanda, uh, the emergence of Kepler uh, and institutions like that that are further democratizing access, but are not quite at the, uh, you know, so low cost that anyone anywhere can attend uh, yet. And so I I, I think we'll see that in these waves, although I expect that in Africa and places, uh, you know, other developing countries, uh, that those waves may be significantly more compressed uh, Mm -hmm. than the timeline I just laid out in the United States. And I, I think the opportunity, frankly, is that where Africa and other developing nations um, throughout the world uh, can leapfrog the United States is that they don't have to rely on the same technologies that the United States used uh, as they established their higher education institutions. That is, you can move to mobile learning, online learning, blended learning uh, modalities much quicker to, in my opinion, uh, stand up different institutions of, of different purposes uh, and scale them significantly faster and more affordably, which I, I think is a really exciting opportunity. The, the lesson I think that I draw from Afosa's work in Prosperity Paradox uh, and from the history of higher education in America is that these waves of higher ed innovation should be in lockstep with the needs of the economy, uh, that, that these things shouldn't be independent or decoupled or, or that we assume just because we have higher education for all, that all of a sudden the economy will develop, it's more likely that we're going to see innovation in the economy. And then that pull in uh, individuals uh, into the economy and, and, and create the need for more skills, which will create the need for more 
education and training programs, which I think is, you know, the uh, Adela, Indela story right now, yeah. uh, or Moringa School, right, and places like that that are responding to that demand right now. Excellent. You're spot on. Um, two things. One is the transition from um, education being targeted at the elites to the transition of it being targeted at what um, what the reality is. So for the U.S., it was agriculture and industrialization. Uh, for Africa, is we need good leadership, right? That's what ALU, that's what Ashesi, that's what they are doing. For Africa, you need um, a workforce that can sort of power through the the 21st century. That's what Andela is doing. And I, I think it's, it, the, the parallels are very clear. The parallels are extremely clear. So I, I, I want to take a peek into your, your book that's coming up um, and just speak to, in the US, and maybe we can, we can draw some correlation with what we see in, in Africa, in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. Um, why do students choose education. Yeah, so in, in, in the new book, In Choosing College, uh, which is available for pre-order now, so you can, you can uh, put in your advanced uh, copy. It, it comes out in September, as I said. Uh, what we did was we created many documentaries of uh, uh, well over 200 stories of students choosing to attend higher education. And so that's anything from college to boot camps to online programs, et cetera. Uh, and our research was focused in the United States, but but I think the lessons are, are broadly applicable. And what we did was we took the job to be done theory, the, the notion that people don't buy products or services, they're instead uh, seeking to make progress in, in their life in a specific circumstance, mm-hmm. and then they pull in products or services to help them make that progress. We, we applied that idea to basically say, okay, what are the five jobs for which people hire college, if you will? Why, why are they attending? Uh, and and as I said, we came out with five out of the uh, out of the research, um, which which wasn't what we expected. By the way, we we had sort of no notion going in of what we might find, and uh, my predictions of what the jobs would have been were totally wrong. So, so what we learned was uh, the first job is what we call help me get into my best school. So these are people who they've sort of been sold the American dream or the dream of going to college for its own sake, and they just want to get into the best school as, as they define the best for them um, under, under their, uh, uh, you know, h- however they frame that decision. But it's all about the act of getting in. It's very little about what they'll do after they get in. And yeah. so a lot of these surveys that so show students are just going to get a job or something like that, that's something that people will answer in a survey, but it's not the real motivation for how or why they choose at, at, the, at the moment that they do. The second job we saw was help me do what's expected of me. So these are students who are going uh, because someone else uh, thought that they should. Their parents, their guidance counselors, their teachers, society, whomever said, you know, college is a really good next step. You ought to do that. Even though the students either weren't sure why they were going, they weren't particularly excited, or thirdly, uh, they hadn't gotten into the school they actually wanted to go into, and so they sort of felt like they just had to go somewhere uh, to fulfill someone else's expectations. Mm-hmm. But they're not personally very excited about it. Uh, the third job we found was uh, help me get away. So these are students who are running from something, a- abusive stepfather, bad town, bad work situation, whatever it might be. And uh, college is something socially acceptable that they can say that they're going to. Uh, to get away, but they're very unclear about uh, once they've gotten away, which is success for them, they're very unclear why they are enrolled, and so the success rates are not particularly great. 
uh, for students who are committing to long uh, programs uh, in, in this job. And then the, the fourth one we found was uh, super interesting. It was help me step it up. So these students are super motivated. They're in a place where they like large parts of their life, but something just isn't uh, what it needs to be. And they say, this isn't who I am. I'm ready to step it up. I've, I've got a kid on the way. I've got a house that I have to pay off the mortgage, whatever it might be. And they say, I need new skills to step it up in my life. Uh, and then the last one we had was uh, that, that we found was help me extend myself. So these are uh, students who are looking uh, to, to learn more or be more, uh, and they have the time and budget to do it. And so they, it's sort of the, uh, I've always wanted to know more about X. So now I can, uh, I'm in a position where there, it's relatively low risk, and I can com- uh, make the commitment to learn more about something. I always joked uh, with my co-author, Bob uh, Mesta, who's the founder of the Jobs to be Done Theory, that this was a job I never had in my life uh, because I've never been able to go back to school in this in this sort of thing, situation. And he said, sure, you have had the job, but for you, uh, you're not in a position to go back to college, so you hire a book or a podcast uh, like this one uh, to make progress in your life, which which I thought was a really helpful way to understand this one. Interesting. I, I'm extremely curious as to what the what we would see intersect if we were to do the same sort of research with um, students in, say, Ghana and Nigeria. Um, I suspect I'll be also very wrong, um, but it would be so interesting <laughs> to find out what the data would would say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we thought, or I don't know if Bob thought, <laughs> he's he's done this enough that he has, he's humble about what you'll find. Uh, but I thought that we'd find things like help me get a better job, help me switch careers, help me uh, transition to adulthood, things like that. Hmm. And that's just not the language that actual individuals use. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Like we're not just functional human beings mm-hmm. who are just going uh, to something for one purpose. We have a lot of forces pushing and pulling us towards something. And and these decisions are complicated and complex. And so the job to be done really rolls up a lot of these different forces uh, that are pushing and pulling us towards something new. Interesting. I, the one I find the most interesting, they're all very interesting, but the one I would like to pry into is help me get away. That I, I would like to mm. see what happens after you've gotten away and how you manage or balance um, your what was success for you and what is now reality. It would be so interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I, it's you know it's fascinating because I think one of our big suggestions out of it is how do you help people see that there are other options besides a four-year school, say, when they have that job? Because uh, you know what they really need to do is get out of their current circumstance, and is, and the moment they've done that, they've succeeded. And it's a then what question, right? And mm-hmm. so, uh, in some ways you know, could you put them into a series of uh, boot camp experiences, mm-hmm. 90-day sprints or 30-day sprints through a variety of different careers so they could say, oh, I really like that. Like, mm-hmm. I've gotten away from my current circumstance and I want to do that. How do I go do that? And then you can start to uh, illuminate what that pathway would look like. And if they're still interested, then they can uh, dive into a new career pathway or something like that. Uh, but all too often, uh, a lot of these students in that job were, were were just running from something, and they would commit to the first thing that sort of grabbed them that was socially acceptable, and it it just doesn't end well when when you uh, take that pathway. This brings us quite well into the next question, uh, which is looking at the future of work, right, and the current design of higher education. What role should higher education play, right? How should it be structured? 
Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's definitely moved my thinking on this uh, a little bit. I think as higher education has to understand, you know, why people are coming to them and design experiences appropriately. But on the other side, they have to realize that their other customer is often the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the employers that will hire you so that you can pay back the experience and make the investment uh, worthwhile. And in, in this country, we have a system where uh, people pay, uh, you, you know, take out debt and loans so that they can go to higher education. And the only way that they can pay those uh, loans back is if they get a good job. And so the employer plays a critical part in it. What I think is evident is that a lot of the uh, schooling programs, they're created around the needs of the school. <laughs> they haven't thought about what the needs of the workforce are. Yeah. And this isn't to say liberal arts education is a bad idea. I think it's a very good idea, but it has to be liberal arts with a purpose uh, toward, toward something larger in your life uh, and, and adding on technical skills that will be critical in the workforce. So uh, from, from my perspective, uh, higher education has to do a much better job of thinking through how do we prepare students to enter the workforce, and then how do we create more affordable, flexible, and convenient models so that students can continue to come back to us as they need to step it up in their careers. Uh, because the reality on the jobs that I just painted is that these jobs occur throughout your life. You're going to constantly be in positions where you need to step it up, where you need to get away from something else, mm -hmm. where you want the best thing for you, where you want to just simply extend yourself because you're curious, can, can I do X, right? And so you want a higher education system that can match the rhythms and needs uh, of those different jobs as they occur in your life, uh, aimed at, at life success, which, you know, isn't always, but is often uh, around the demands of the uh, workforce. I see a two-point or three-point mapping, right? One, higher education has to map to the needs of the students, and it also has to map to the needs of the workers while still um, taking care of itself, right? And, and mm -hmm. that's supposed to be the structure. Yeah, something we talk a lot about is there's sort of supply-side view of jobs to be done, and then there's a demand-side view. So the supply-side is, well, we offer bachelor's degrees, so I guess we'll offer a bachelor's degree. That's what they need. Uh, but that doesn't take into account or understand the demand side. And the mm -hmm. demand side is that the employers and, and students frame these uh, challenges uh, through their prism. And if you really want to meet demand and be uh, a place that people are dying to go to and, quite frankly, are willing to pay premium prices to go to, then you really have to start with the demand side equation. Forget about what you do today uh, and then integrate tightly uh, what you offer around that demand side view of the world. Interesting. We could spend uh, the next three hours talking about that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot. It's a rich topic and I've, I've learned a ton through it. Wonderful. Okay. So I, I want to come into a, a very interesting um, article you and Clint Christensen put out um, about disruption of higher education in the U.S. Um, can, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I, I, I assume you're referring to the piece we just wrote on in uh, Inside Higher Ed, where we were talking about the demise of small private colleges in the United States. Is yes. that, that the article, I assume? Yeah. So, uh, it's you know, it's very interesting. We have in the United States a ton of colleges and universities, several thousand, uh, which most people, I think, don't realize. And 40% of our colleges educate fewer than 1,000 students. So, when people uh, watch TV and hear Ohio State with, with tens of thousands of students, 
or uh, they think about Yale and Harvard, you know, with, with uh, Harvard, I think, has 20,000 students, uh, including its graduate population. You know, they think that's the face of higher ed. But the reality is there's tons of small colleges and universities no one's ever heard of outside of those towns uh, that exist in this country. Mm-hmm. And what's been happening is that costs have just been going up year over year over year on those institutions. And since the recession in particular, but you could argue for a while, the ability of individuals to pay those prices uh, just hasn't just hasn't kept up, and so institutions have started to discount uh, what they offer more and more and more, give people scholarships in essence to attend, which means that they're not bringing in enough revenue <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to match their costs. And more lately, we're starting to see demographic pressures, meaning that there are fewer and fewer students in certain regions of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, big contrast, I think, from you know the, the where you are in Ghana right now, uh, where, where we're just not ha- we, out of the recession, we just had fewer children in this country. And so uh, there's going to be a, a dip in the number of high school graduates that will go to college starting in 2026. Uh, and uh, it's already hitting in places like the Northeast and Massachusetts, where I live right now. And so colleges, these small colleges that have, you know, enormous fixed costs and, and, and lots of physical plant just losing 10, 15 students from an entering class really hurts their business model. And that's happening year over year over year right now. And you combine these forces. And so our prediction is that at least 25% of colleges are going to merge or or close uh, in the next 15 years or so. Uh, And then the third piece of this that I, I actually think is playing less of a role, and it was the point that we made, is that Clay and I are sort of known as the disruptive innovation people. Uh, but uh, if you look at it, and, and we think online learning is a disruptive innovation in, in education, no doubt about it, but it's not playing a huge role at the moment in this weakness hitting these small colleges. I think it's playing a role at the margins uh, in, in the form of boot camps and places like Southern New Hampshire University that educate 130,000 students or so now. They're playing a role at the margins um, for these institutions. But they aren't the primary driver at the moment of why so many small colleges, we believe, are going to uh, go out of business or fail uh, in the years ahead. A college that's listening to this right now and thinking about, okay, one, what's the driver of the of the overhead, right? The the increasing yeah. overhead, um, and how can we sort of protect against this disruption and and make sure we innovate? And how do we go about that? Yeah, so great question. I'm glad you brought out the other piece of the article that we referenced, which is a major driver of the cost increases is not sort of the uh, crazy amenities that U.S. universities now uh, have in place, like opulent dining halls and lazy rivers and the like. The main driver of the cost is administrative overhead, uh, which is to coordinate the complexity of these operations that try to be all things to all people. So we have two pieces of advice, ultimately. One is figure out where your strengths are and uh, leverage them to innovate. So, you know, uh, Southern New Hampshire University didn't stand pat. They created a robust online offering that now means they're the largest university, I think, in the world. Uh, And uh, Simmons College in Boston, small, struggling liberal arts college uh, for women, uh, realized that they had great nursing and social work programs that had national appeal, put them online, and now they generate something like $60 million uh, from those programs online. Uh, in just like five or six years, so wow. there's tremendous uh, opportunity if you if if you you know 
see your assets and figure out novel ways to innovate around them. The second thing we say is really be clearer, you know, to that conversation we were having earlier around choosing college. What's the job to be done for which students are coming to you? What's the true demand for what you offer? And really focus around that. Stop trying to be all things to all people and just be the best you can be uh, where where you can be excellent for, for, for students that are demanding what you do. And so, uh, you know, a place like Olin College of Engineering, it's really clear that a, a, a liberal arts education in engineering is what they offer. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a great place to learn to design and, and think and, and do real meaty projects. They're not going to offer uh, an English degree or an uh, you know, far-flung degrees that don't fit uh, with what they do, journalism or something like that. Uh, they're crystal clear, and so they can lower their administrative overhead as they really focus in and uh, and hone in on the job to be done for which uh, students are hiring them. And so that focus, eliminating complexity, can really aid you uh, as you uh, as, as you try to figure out how to ward off this collapse that uh, is threatening many institutions right now. How, how would he affect um, those in developing nations with increasing um, growing population and average age of 18? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so my instinct is that um, that helped me get into my best school job that we have in the United States is probably significantly less of a presence um, in Africa because there hasn't been a cultural norm around this college dream, right, that the, that the uh, publications here obsess about uh, and that media obsesses about here. Um, and so my instinct is that there's going to be a lot of students that are in this help me step it up, right? Like, mm. uh, I, want, I want to step it up, lift my, my family out of poverty, uh, create something that's valuable, uh, live a good life. This isn't who I am. Otherwise, there, there may be a help me get away driver as well. But, but my instinct is that that's where a lot of the energy would, would probably be. And so I think the opportunity is to create uh, short-form blended learning programs that allow you to serve uh, students relatively low cost and low opportunity cost, um, but with uh, uh, programs that very are, are very tuned to the workforce needs so that they can get you in, train you up, and then place you directly into well-paying jobs. And you may then choose to go back to higher education and, and maybe a more formal university program later for further education. But in the immediate term, it's going to, my, my instinct is that there's a huge opportunity for innovation uh, to, to, to serve this burgeoning population that might not have the liquidity to, to you know, pay for a traditional uh, Western style college experience. Uh, and so I, I think there's tremendous opportunity to innovate in that way. And I, I think the blended learning piece of it is important because my instinct is that mobile learning or online learning, and I actually am really bullish on mo- mobile learning in particular, particularly in Africa, but I think it'll actually disrupt online learning worldwide over the next uh, several years, um, uh, creates very flexible, high quality experiences uh, that can really help you build knowledge and then you can apply it in physical settings uh, with others of your classmates uh, in, in, in what's effectively blended learning. And so my, my instinct is that you can really create clusters of like-minded individuals who are interested in the same sort of industries and jobs uh, and, and have them work in places near their employers uh, so that you can really create some neat synergies um, uh, that, that are affordable and, and convenient through these blended learning type programs. 
this is sort of similar to the Lambda and the Andela model? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, very, very, very similar. You know, I mean, I, I look at what Moringa's school is doing, frankly, um, where they're even lower cost than Andela, right? And they're sort of, if you think of Andela as educating maybe the, uh, not quite the elite of the uh, coders and so forth, but but that sort of strata, right, of, of people. Mm-hmm. Moringa School is like that next layer out um, and actually uses a lot of Mandela graduates as its teachers, I believe. Uh, and they have created a really interesting blended learning program uh, that is able to serve and scale uh, to large numbers of students that I think is really interesting. Uh, one of the projects we worked on, so I'm, I'm the head of strategy at Entangled, as I said, um, we offer consulting services uh, to higher ed institutions. We worked with Aquila, uh, you know, based in Rwanda, um, on their new concept uh, called Davis, um, which will be a blended learning competency-based model uh, focused on a, uh, a, a, a certificate or degree at roughly $800 um, price point using a, this blended learning model to significantly drive down costs, um, but give people a very high-touch model that, that uh, results in a, in, in, in a job at the end of it. Uh, and so we're very bullish on the opportunity as we worked with them to create this, this learning model just a lot of opportunities, we think, right now to really rethink what education looks like to give people a, an affordable experience that places them into a job at the end of it. I, I think that's cited. Um, two things come to mind. One is the sort of the fire model um, that was run in Italy, um, I think in the 19th century, uh, where they basically created um, company schools uh, because of the low low human resource in the country at the time, and you look at the partnership that was recently signed by Tuyu and WeWork, um, which basically promotes or, or builds on the concept of a blended learning. And looking at all of these things coming together, right? So you're looking at companies like multinationals that want to come into into Africa and take advantage of this demography. How how, how can these two things be combined, right? Um, so mm-hmm. companies are not going out to set up schools, even though they are blended learning models, and organizations and private entities are pushing this model. Yeah, I, look, I think you're on to something, which is companies can create co-working spaces, essentially, where you have both learners as well as employees in the same proximity to each other, right? Mm-hmm. So that uh, as I'm doing projects, I, maybe I'm learning online and then I'm doing a project with my fellow students, and that project can be one that the company uh, is really interested in. And so I can start to be working on a project directly around to that company, show them my skills. Uh, and get uh, connections and build social capital at the same time with the employees of that company, which is going to give them more confidence to hire me on the other end. And uh, the company creates this learning space, if you will, that people want to be around and, and, and a real community. And they also create a name for themselves so that they differentiate themselves maybe uh, within within whichever country in Africa you, know, you, you, you want to talk about. Um, uh, and it looks like they're making an investment in the in, in the country, which they are, but it's for selfish reasons, right? <laughs> because that's going to allow them to have an unfair leg up uh, to to recruit in, uh, their future uh, employees and, and have people that meet the uh, talent needs that they, that they require. And so I think it's a great idea for companies to sort of be leveraging 
this online learning modality to, to create these spaces where learners can come and then they can get the pick of the best ones uh, for, for, their, uh, for their talent needs. Interesting. I see a lot of possibilities there. Again, another conversation we can go down the rabbit hole and spend three hours <laughs> on. Um, yes. Uh, so basically, I want I want to go. I'm tempted to go a bit deeper into that. For I see like a model where you can even leverage and bring um, and bring the public sector into this. Right. You have companies that can more or less power the co-working space um, and they don't even have to think so much about um, pedagogy and the learning um, environment design and all of that partner with I had an institution or someone like Moringa who, who powers the uh, academic part of things right and get some sort of concession from the government right that, that mm -hmm. makes it more accessible and in that way there's some elements of leapfrogging um because with the u.s as you as you spoke about earlier it started with the elites um went to more targeted at what the needs are in society and then became about access and about uh, equitable distribution of it right so th there can be a leapfrog element where you bring private companies and you bring the government um in, in, into the portal I think that's right. And look, right now the United States is trying to retrofit its system so that employers are much more in the conversation, right, with, with its uh, higher education system. And it's hard because it's an install base that's built around a very different set of values. Uh, and so it's very hard to have that conversation in a, in, in, in a productive way uh, without it getting antagonistic. And it's not to say that the employer is always right uh, by any means. You know, higher ed has a lot of value and, and perspective on this. And people like we just said, they're, they're not just going to school to get a job, but job is an important piece of the outcome in, yeah. in many of these cases. And so uh, Africa, I think, has a tremendous opportunity uh, to synchronize these points of view as it creates this system and resolve maybe some of these tensions that have emerged in the United States over the last several decades. Interesting. Thank you so much, Michael Horn. Um, our last question we typically like to ask a slightly personal question. Um, mm. What's your favorite vacation destination? Yeah, well, so, so I, I, I understand that there are fights over food choices between Ghana and Nigeria <laughs> and so forth. Uh, so I'm not going to weigh not in on that. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah, I'm not going to weigh in on that. Uh, the, uh, 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 Afosa has done his best to train me. But, uh, the, uh, and, and, of course, he's on the Nigerian side of that. Um, so uh, my wife and I love to escape to Hawaii whenever we can. We, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magical place uh, with, with lots of outdoor activity. Uh, each of the islands has a different character, uh, and, and we love uh, to, to, to get outdoors and be there. We go a lot less often these days than, than we used to uh, when we lived uh, in California. Uh, now that we're in, on the other side of the country, it's a little harder, uh, but it is a truly magical place. But I would have to say uh, Hawaii uh, because of the... Uh, the mix of the outdoors, the the the, the food, uh, and 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 just a very different climate um, f from uh, the rest of the country. Wonderful, wonderful. And on that note, we will end it. Thank you so much. We hope to welcome you soon to Ghana or Nigeria. Um, very soon, actually. Uh, we'll I, I I I I hope so as well. I, I'm uh, I, I'm 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 counting on it. So thank you so much for what you're doing.
Thank you so much. And um, as you all know, this uh, podcast is sponsored by Blender Learning. Um, it's a blended learning training company um, that provides training in project management, um, effective communication and leadership and a lot more. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, looking forward to other future conversations. Uh, looking forward to doing this a lot more. Terrific. Thank you so much.